Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of John 17, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 20. And these are words that come directly from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of all the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And may God add his blessings to the reading of this word. Let us be in prayer. God, we just ask that these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples and spoke to us through them will dwell in our hearts, that we will take those in and ponder them and just really consider all that is meant here by the relationship that with that you had with Jesus and that he had with you and that relationship that we desire to have also. Lord, just fill our hearts with these words and let us keep them close. And as we Receive the words of Pastor Keith's message this morning that you have 
put on his heart to share with us. We just ask for open hearts and open minds to receive those words and to live them out in the days ahead. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Well, Pastor Mike comes back tomorrow. We have a long meeting scheduled. He's got a lot of stuff he wants to talk to us about. And he's going to want to know how things are going here. So here's our story. Okay? Everything went great, but not too great. Okay? So if we say it, if we say it went badly, then, then he'll, he'll lack faith in us. But if we say it went too great, then, you know, maybe he'll be upset and he'll, uh, you know feel like he can just go away whenever he wants. We don't want that, right? So when Pastor Mike comes back next week and he, he says something to the effect of, hey, I'm here, it's good to be back, I want you guys to like break into this thunderous applause. But if he says, how was, how was it when I was gone, say, they did as well as they could have been expected to and maybe a little bit better, all right? <laughs> and if you see any trash lying around, please help us pick it up and make sure that everything's back in order. So no, I, I talk to Mike every, every couple days, and he's, he's doing well. He's had a wonderful time, and he's, but he, I think he's ready to come back and be with all of you, and, uh, and uh, it'll be good to have him back. So this morning, we're going to talk a little bit more about the kind of friend Jesus is, and we've been going through this series for the past four weeks now on Jesus is a friend of mine, and this week, we're going to talk about that Jesus is the kind of friend who prays for you. Now, I'm going to ask you, do, do you pray for your friends? Do you, I mean, do you regularly pray for your friends? Do you sit down when you, when you have time with the Lord and do you think about what's going on in your friends' lives and, and pray for them? I hope that you do. It's important to you uh, because that's what Jesus does. But it, I've always wrestled with this a little bit. Now, the prayer that Vicki read from John chapter 17 is a prayer that takes place on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. And I don't know about you, but if I was going to be uh, beaten brutally and crucified and murdered the following day, my prayer probably would look a little bit different than Jesus' prayer that night. I mean, he did offer the prayer that said, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. About three or four sentences about himself. And when it comes to the prayers for his friends, this great discourse that we see in John 17, and Vicki only read a portion of it. There's much, much more. So why does Jesus even need to pray? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, Jesus is God. Jesus knows everything. Jesus created everything. Jesus obviously has power over everything. So yet, why does Jesus need to pray? Well, really, if you came here asking for me to solve that question, I'm not going to do it. Because I don't know. If I knew the answer to why Jesus needed to pray or why Jesus prayed in a, in a complete and thorough way, I'd be writing books and lecturing at universities and all that kind of stuff. I'd, of course, still come to 830 Church here at First United Methodist in the middle of all that. But here's what I come up with as I, as I wrote this sermon, thinking about why does Jesus need to pray? I'm okay with the answer that says, you know, I'm not really sure I understand all that, but here's where I wound up. If Jesus needs to pray, then, then we have no excuse not to pray. If, if Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion, and of course many other times, went alone to pray, then what's our excuse for not praying? If, if it was important enough for him, it needs to be important enough 
for us. So what does it mean that Jesus prays for us? Why and what does it mean? Well, first and foremost, it means this, that Jesus is rooting for you, that he wants you to succeed. Think about this prayer that Vicki prayed. Recognize that God is for you. He's rooting for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 34. I, I have to believe that Paul had read this text, although scholars would say that he hadn't. But look at the similarities between what Paul writes and what Jesus had prayed. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, pay attention to that. That is present tense. This isn't saying, uh, this isn't talking about something that already happened. This isn't saying that Jesus said a prayer for you. This is a window into what Jesus' activities are right now, presently, for us. He is at this very moment before the right hand of God the Father praying for us, praying for you, praying for me. This is what Jesus is all about. On your worst day, Jesus is praying for you. On your best day, Jesus is praying for you. On the days that you feel incredibly close to God, like everything's going great, that's where Jesus is is right now. He's praying for you. On those days where you feel, or those weeks, or, or however longer, where you feel far from God because you've wandered away, that's where Jesus is. He's praying for you. On the days when you don't even know if he loves you, He is praying for you. So what it means that he prays for us is that he's rooting for you. It also means that Jesus empowers you. And when you realize this, your life can change. Now think about this. From our study in James that we all went through together, verse 5, 16, we read this text. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's what James wrote about other human beings. He said that we need to pray for each other. You need to pray for your friends. I need to pray for my friends. We need to pray for each other because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, who is there that's more righteous than Jesus? Answer, nobody. Who is there that even comes close? Answer, nobody. So if our prayers, even though we're sinful human beings, have the effect in heaven and and, and are, are powerful, imagine how much more powerful are the prayers of the sinless Son of God. He empowers us in every way that a person can be empowered. He gives us direction, encouragement, strength, but most of all, he gives us his presence. So these are what it means that Jesus prays for us. But now let's look a little bit deeper into the prayer and look at the what Jesus prays. What is his prayer for you and for me? Now, I have to say something about this before I go too much further because it's very important that you understand the disclaimer to this sermon and to this prayer. This is a prayer that is not intended for everybody. I know that might sound kind of strange, but Jesus himself said that in the prayer. He said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those whom the Father has given me. 
He's saying that this is a prayer that applies specifically to believers. The prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17 and the prayer that he offers in, these, in, these, in this context is a prayer for his children, for his disciples, for those who put their faith and trust in him. Make no mistake about it. If, if a person is not a believer in Jesus, if you haven't turned your heart to Christ, his prayer for you is significantly different. His prayer for you is that you would see him who he truly is, that you would turn from your sin and repent and follow Christ, that you'd put your faith and trust in, not in the things of this world, but in Jesus Christ, that you'd recognize that salvation is given by no other name under heaven than by the name of Jesus. That's his prayer for, for the world. That's his prayer for those who haven't yet to put their faith and trust in him. So he still continues to pray. It's just a different prayer. If you or a close family member or a friend or relative hasn't yet turned to Christ, he's praying for you as well. He's praying that you'd see him as he truly is, that you'd come home, that you'd recognize what life can be with Jesus Christ. But for those of us who have put our faith and trust in him, for those of us who have made that decision, made that commitment, who have been called by God, this is the prayer that he offers for us. The first thing he offers in this prayer is that we would have great joy. That we would have joy. Now think about that again. The night before his crucifixion, he's praying for joy. In John 15, he, he explains to his disciples all these things I have told you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus Christ was a man of joy. He was a man filled with unspeakable joy. And his desire was that his joy would be received and shared by those whom he loved, by his disciples, by those who put their faith in him. And that's why he told them all these things, so that his joy would be in us and that it would be complete. What do you think it means to have your joy complete? It means this, that you recognize that you're ultimately lacking nothing. That you're ultimately lacking nothing. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute, Pastor Keith, I lack a lot. My life's a wreck right now. My, my world is upside down. Uh, I have all sorts of problems. How can I be expected to have joy when so many things are wrong? Well, I think because we oftentimes misrepresent joy and think that it's about happiness. Happiness is not joy. Happiness is a feeling that usually is dependent upon whatever's going on around us in our lives. Whereas joy is something far deeper and far better. Joy is being thankful and grateful because of your salvation. It's recognizing that no matter what happens in this life, you're more than okay because you have Jesus. Sometimes it's hard though, isn't it? Yesterday, I, was, uh, I had the unfortunate task of, of going down. We have a little, uh, a little trailer house on a lake in Illinois that we bought when we lived in the Quad Cities. And it's not much, but it's a fun place for us to go and hang out. And we've done a lot of work to it. Well, uh, I got a call from my neighbor last Monday. Uh, you better get down here. I'm like, oh, no. I knew when I saw the caller ID that there was trouble. We noticed a pile of, uh, puddle and pile of water coming out onto the ground from your place. I thought, that's not good. He goes, so I went inside, and your bathroom sink fixture, I didn't know this could happen, the handle exploded, the knob, and water had been gushing out of the fixture 
onto the ceiling and all over, covered the entire bathroom and part of the bedroom. He's like, we got the water turned off at the well, but you got a mess down here. So Friday night after we finished uh, something that we were doing in Davenport, I drove down there and walked into, you know, utter destruction and ruin. And of course, our place is on the market. We're trying to sell it. That's going to go great, isn't it? <laughs> I'm thinking that's going to go in the line, you know, in the photos that we take of it. Hey, this has a hot tub in it um, and under it. So I walked in and of course the bathroom is just, you know, covered in the, the rust colored water that comes from wells and it's just destroyed. The carpet is, 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 is I mean, I had to tear the whole entire bathroom and, and carpet out of the, of the bedroom. I mean, it was, it's a, it's a, it's a bad, bad deal. So I'm in this and I knew I was going to be preaching about joy this morning. So I thought, Lord, help me not to lose it. You know, help me remember this, Lord, as I, you know. Because I certainly wasn't happy, but I can honestly tell you, I had joy. Because even though this place is falling apart now and is probably, I don't know what's going to happen to it, I just had to pray and trust the Lord. God, this is ultimately nothing. You know? I mean, I was in Haiti where, where even a trailer with no bathroom and messed up carpet and, and walls would have been a palace compared to what, what I saw down there for, for 80% of the people that, that I saw. I have a family that loves me. I have a, a, a wonderful job here at this church in and in a place I love to be and great friends. And of course, more than anything, I have the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ who's given me life eternal. What possibly could wreck that? A little water on a, on a, on a little trailer? Of course not. Now, was I happy? No. But you want to know something? I still have joy. And I believe that God works in all things. Maybe he did all that just so I could have a little illustration in this message. I hope it was a good one. I hope you learned a lot. I hope your lives are changed forever. Jesus prays for your joy. He also prays for protection from the evil one. Do you notice that in his prayer? He says, Lord, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you'd protect them from the evil one. Because when I was here, I protected them. You know, one of Jesus' favorite images of himself is this image of a good shepherd protecting his sheep. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. When wolves come around, I take them out. Jesus said, even in the Lord's prayer, we, we, we pray this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus' prayer is that you'd be protected because the Bible tells us that Satan, our adversary, is prowling around like a lion looking for someone who he can devour. He has schemes. He has plans. He has a target on you, and he wants to take you down. And one of the ways he'll take you down is to, to make you think that, that your life is all about your circumstances and, and to, to get you to see the negative things around you so you'll have your joy stolen and then you won't be thankful and grateful anymore to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, I want to protect you from that. We have no idea what is happening around us in the spiritual world. We have no idea the things that, that God has done to protect us. Some of us pray, God, when are you going to save me from this? When are you going to protect me from that? You have no idea the things he has protected us from. That's his prayer for us. He prays also for our sanctification by the truth. Now, sanctification is what happens when a person becomes more like Jesus. When you first become saved, the Bible calls that justification. You're, 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 you're saved. But then this process begins called sanctification, which basically means to be set apart. 
to become more like Jesus. And what it means is this, your life will change. You will start to become more like Christ. You'll become holy. You'll become like Jesus. The more you hang around with Jesus, the more you become like him. Do you ever, you ever know that? Like with husbands and wives, the more they hang around each other, they start to be like, become like each other. Have you ever met those couples that start to look alike too? Isn't that weird? Right? I mean, people say sometimes that that, that, that can happen. And I, I believe it. I mean, in some cases. And we never talk about who gets the better end of the deal on that. But the truth is, when you spend time with someone, you become like them in certain ways. And that's what Jesus says will happen to you when you spend more time with him. You'll become more like him. But how does this happen? Notice that Jesus prays that it happens by the truth. Holiness comes not by trying harder, but rather by embracing truth. Hear that and understand it. You see, the more you embrace and apply truth to your life, the more like Jesus you become. And this is Jesus' prayer for all of us. He doesn't pray that you'd be stronger or that you'd be better or that you'd try harder. He prays that you would understand and apply the truth to your life. See, there's a lot of people that try really, really hard at the wrong things. I used to have a, a, a drum teacher when I was first starting. And he used to say to me, Keith, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Because you can get really good at doing the wrong thing correctly. Think about that for a second. Just let that one soak right in there at, eight, at 9 o'clock in the morning. Don't do the wrong thing correctly and think that you've accomplished anything. Too many times we do that. I used to go into my lesson and be like, oh, I got this, you know, and I'd play this thing on the drum, and it would sound okay, but he'd look at me and he'd go, you did it all wrong. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, that's not how you're supposed to hold your sticks. That's not how you're supposed to move yourself when you play. That's not how it's supposed to be. And I'd be like, what? But I did it. He's like, no, you're, you're practicing it wrong. I pract- but I practiced, I practiced, I practiced. I tried really hard. He said, well, you did it all wrong anyway. So what I want you to do is to practice correctly, and then you'll realize that once you start practicing in the right way, things just flow. It's the same thing with our faith. You know, there's a lot of people in, in, in life and faith that have, have found a way to do all the wrong things correctly when it comes to their faith. There's entire religions built around that. There are entire religious systems built around the fact that your salvation is dependent on how good you are. So there's systems and there's prayers and there's, there's rituals and there's all these sorts of things that, that help a human being try really, really hard and do all these things and you can check them off like boxes out throughout your life. Except for the fact the Bible says that you're not saved by your own effort but by the grace of God. So you can believe all you want that your salvation has to do with you doing certain things the right way. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, I want you to embrace the truth. The truth is it's all about him. The truth is we're saved by grace. The truth is that that we're forgiven. That's why we change. The truth is that Jesus Christ is the center of the universe, not ourselves. Embrace the truth. Find out what it is. Many times we don't even know because we're, we're, we're too wrapped up in, in our own selves, but we don't dig into the scriptures enough to see what is the truth. Too often times our prayer is, God, fix this, not God, what's true? That's what we want to know. And that's what Jesus says gives us power to change. 
The next thing that Jesus prays for us is that we would have unity with others. And sadly, the Christian church is anything but unified. And you know, you and I here can't fix that. But what we can do is live in unity with those around us, even if we disagree with people on certain points. It was Augustine, the the, the great father of the faith in the fourth century, who said this. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Now think about that. In the things that are essential, we should all have, the, we should be like-minded. We should have unity. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He's God come in the flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross and bodily resurrected on the third day so that we might be saved. That's essential. We must have unity in that belief. We must have unity around what the message of the gospel is. We must have unity that it is Jesus who saves us, not we who save ourselves. But we also must have liberty in the non-essentials. Are we supposed to baptize babies or baptize only adults? Do we sprinkle, dip, spray, whatever? When we take communion, do we do the rip and dip? Or do we do the, you know, the come forward and have it put on your tongue? Do you receive it at your seat? And if you do, do you wait until everybody gets it before you drink it? Or do you just do it whenever you feel like it? These are all, you know, non-essential issues. So we need to have liberty with those things. We need to be free to pursue that which we believe God has called us to do in our faith. But in all things, charity. In all things, even those with whom we disagree, we're to have love and charity and grace toward one another. Unity with others. That's Jesus' prayer. He doesn't want the kids to fight. Neither do you, right? There's nothing worse than when kids fight. That's what Jesus is saying. Knock it off down there. Don't make me come down there. I'll pull this car over right now. I can just imagine Jesus, you know. He also prays that we would have unity with God. You see, uniformity says that we must all be the same, but unity says that we're on the same team and that we have the same Lord. And that's why we need unity with God. We're not called to all be exactly the same people. That's not what the point is. But we are called to have unity with God. See, Jesus talks about oneness with God. And if anybody understood it, it was certainly Jesus. And his prayer for us is that we share in the oneness with God. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we become God. But it means that we desire an intimate, close relationship with God. Because he desires one with us. Now, the best earthly picture that we're given in the Scripture between what Jesus and his church want to have in terms of their unity and relationship is the picture of marriage that Paul gives us in Ephesians 5. So here's what Paul writes. And remember, this is about husbands and wives, but it's also about Christ and the church. He says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, 
and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. See, there is no greater picture of unity than the unity between a husband and wife as God designed it, as God intends. And this is the comparison that we have between Christ and His church. It's the same level of intimacy. Do you feel this way about God and in your faith? This is what God intends for you. So, the question I want to ask you as we close this morning and move into communion is this. Do your goals and prayers for your own life match up to the goals and prayers that Jesus has for you? Do your prayers for your life match up for Jesus' prayers? Now, notice what Jesus doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray for his disciples to have comfortable, long, healthy, wealthy lives. He doesn't pray, because by the way, none of them did. All but John were martyred within just a few short years of this prayer. Jesus doesn't pray for our temporal happiness. He prays for things that are far deeper and better. Also remember this. Jesus' prayer is empowering, but it is not controlling. It's a prayer, not a spell. It's what Jesus is asking for us, not what Jesus is programming into us without our cooperation or participation. For we indeed are to to respond to the empowering work of God with a choice that we make to follow Jesus. See, we must choose to cooperate. We've been given everything that we need to do so. This is his prayer for you. Do you pray for your friends? Pray everything for them that Jesus prays for them. And recognize that right now in this very moment, that's what he's doing for you. That's what he's doing for me. Whatever it is you're struggling with right now, you have a friend in Jesus. Whatever it is that you feel is is wrong, that's stealing your joy, you have a friend in Jesus who's praying for you at this very moment that you'd have great joy. You have a friend who's praying for you at this very moment that that sin that you wrestle with, that that part of your life that you wish could finally change, Jesus is praying that it will. He's sending you power. You might think that that you're too old or too young or, or too set in your ways to change or that anything could be ever different for you, but Jesus is praying that it would be, and he gave his life for you that this power might be realized. Let that prayer bring you strength this morning.